at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. This is our Monday, July 10th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited to be here with you this hour to help you become a better investor, encouraging you to make the most of your capital and your time. We all have limited time, we all have limited capital, and you have to spend both wisely. And it can be easy to waste both. You can uh, have, have positions that are at a loss and you don't want to sell them because you don't want to take that loss. And oftentimes, that is not the best use of that capital. It can be reused for something better. And same with the time part, right? There's a lot of information being thrown at us uh, online, in life, and it's about focusing on what's, what matters and eliminating the counterproductive habits that are, that are very common. It's part of being a human, which is letting emotions influence our thought process, chasing headlines and using them to justify your decision-making. Now, there's an old saying, you can chase returns, but you'll never catch them. And I find that to be true over and over again. And you're starting to see that now after this recent run uh, in kind of the bigger ta- cap tech stocks starting to reverse while other parts of the markets are starting to rally. So uh, interesting little trend that I've been talking about for a couple of weeks and started to continue to emerge uh, today. Now, my goal here is to give you my unbiased perspective developed from over 20 years of investment experience and help you take that next step in your journey. And that's what this is. Life is a journey. Life is but a journey. Life is but a series of steps until the end. And hopefully before you get to the end, you get to a level of financial freedom that allows you to live comfortably, to live in a way that allows you to do things that you would like to do versus what you have to do. That's really what financial freedom is. So to that end, this podcast is your opportunity to submit your finance and investment questions that are relevant to your task, to your portfolio. So let's get started. I'm ready to tackle your questions. You have to call though, and our Invest Talk phone line never closes. It's 888-989-CHART. Now my focus point today looks in the story behind this question. Could the American banking system landscape be on the verge of a seismic shift? And we're going to look at some recent trends. We obviously had the banking crisis, the regional banking crisis in the early spring, and now we're into the summer. So, you know, it's starting to look further and further in the rearview mirror, but that doesn't mean that the ramifications of that crisis, mini crisis, aren't yet to be felt, right? There's 
always downstream impacts. And we're going to talk about that. Also, I want to touch on the five main worries of investors after we've entered a new bull market. Equities are up 20% from their lows. Theoretically, technically, that's a new bull market. And there's the old saying, market climbs a wall of worry. And we're going to look at what those worries are. Also, when you're buying an ETF, I, we always say you need to understand what's in it. There are plenty of resources the fund family has to tell you what's in it. So you should be able to go and look at it. And it's pretty interesting to look under the hood of some of these ETFs. And you often aren't getting exactly what the name of the ETF is telling you you're getting. So we're going to look at some of that data. And then lastly, hospitals. Hospitals as an investment, they spent big on nursing and expanding their, their footprint during COVID. But many are closing and closing unprofitable services. And I think this is a good window into a sector of the economy that a lot of people think that's a great investment because it's healthcare and healthcare is consistent. There's always people getting sick. And that couldn't be further from the truth than the fact that, you know, just because you're getting a steady flow of patients doesn't mean you're always profitable. So we're going to look at uh, that whole sector as a whole. All right, let's go to our first listener question. Uh, actually, no, let me, yeah, we're going to, we're also going to touch on a few voice bank questions. One is on bond maturities, other is well tower. And I have a perspective today on the history of investment banks. I'm going to, I really like this one, I'm really kind of subsector of the, the market and something that most people don't understand a ton about, but I want to give some good history. I think that's very interesting. So all this is what we have planned today. But of course, your live calls are most important at 888 chart. And we're going to go to one now. And it's Daniel in Colorado looking at Archer Daniels Midland. Hello. Yes. How are you doing? Hi. Yeah. Um, I'd like your perspective on ADM. I know it pays a dividend. Just wondering um, if you think this is a good buying time. Well, ADM has pulled back, and this is this is Archer Daniels Midland. For everyone else out there, what they do is they are a major processor of oil seeds, corn, wheat, other agricultural commodities. They're huge in the ag space. It owns an extensive network of logistical assets to store and transport crops around the world. It also runs a nutrition business and focuses on human and animal uh, health as well as a large producer of corn-based sweetener, starches, and ethanol. So well-diversified, $42 billion market cap. And so it's it's definitely a large cap. Earnings was to fall 12% this year, 4% next year. And those estimates continue to come down. So that's my biggest worry. The earnings trends are remain negative. The technicals, though, are starting to strengthen. You just crossed above the 100-day moving average. Really, for the first time since the first of the year, first couple trading days of the year, yeah, the first trading day of the year, the first trading day of the year, it opened above the two, the hundred day and closed below it, and it hasn't seen it since. So, it it opened the year right around ninety three dollars per share. It found a low right, right around seventy dollars per share. And now we're at seventy eight fifty four at the close today. Two point three percent dividend yield, like you said, but I always say the 
dividend is not about what it currently is yielding. It's about the, the growth of that and the sustainability of that dividend as well. And now their cash dividend pay ratio is 56%, which is fine. You know, not crazy high, not crazy low. I think this the dividend is sustainable. They are earning above what they normally do. Longer term average is in the low teens for return on equity. This is that about 18% right now, kind of near an all-time high. So uh, yeah, near an all-time high. The highest was in 07. Um, So it's a little bit over earning and you're seeing that reversion to the mean now. But uh, the technicals are once again improving. It's making, it did make it a higher low uh, recently, which I like that from the low in, what was it, the summer of last year? Yeah, summer of last year, where it was also right around $70 per share. Um, you know, it's a good business. It's a good company. Is it, am I head over heels for it? No, uh, because they are technically, for the most part, they're a price taker. Okay. They don't have a huge economic moat around their business, but it's a consistent business. It has consistent cash flow. They have uh, not a ton of debt, which I like. I like companies that don't have, don't have, a, lot, have a lot of debt right now. It's trading at reasonable valuations. And so, you know, I give this one a, a mild buy if you're trying to gain exposure to the soft commodity sector, right? Ag. And this is the biggest, baddest, most well diversified, probably the best run within that space. So if you have no exposure there and you're looking to gain exposure, then this is probably the name for you. So that's Archer Daniels Midland ADM is the symbol. Now we're going into a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank, or if you're listening via the live stream on AM twelve twenty in Silicon Valley, you can call now at eight 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 ninety nine chart. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Foods, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99 CHART. got finance and investment questions and Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready with their unbiased answers. Don't forget to call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. I called to ask about bond maturity. How do I know when a bond is at maturity? Is that based on when I purchase? Is there a date that is specified that I need to look into? I'd love to get some insight on that. Also, speaking of bonds, what do y'all think of bonds such as Ticker symbol ANGL. It's an angel high, uh, fallen angels bond. Uh, I'd love to get some insight on all that. I just asked about. You guys rock. Keep it going. We all learn a lot from y'all. So keep your knowledge flowing, please. Thank you. Have a great day, y'all. 
I appreciate the kind words. And the simple answer is yes, uh, every bond, there are some perpetual bonds that don't mature. Those are very rare. Uh, but you for, for normal standard bonds, treasuries, corporate bonds, municipals, etc. They pretty much all have a maturity date. Uh, so you have to look at the QCIP number, look that up, and there should be a maturity date on there that you can observe. Uh, it's irrelevant when you bought the bond. Uh, it, that particular issue is going to mature on that particular date, unless obviously there's a bankruptcy of any, any kind, and then it never matures. You don't get your par back, and you go into uh, potentially rece receivership of whatever assets the courts tell you you get uh, as a bondholder. Um, but yeah, every bond has a bond maturity pretty much uh, that you have to look up. Now, ANGL is a bond fund, so it is not a bond. It holds bonds. 98% of, of its assets, sorry, 99.8% of its assets are in fixed income, 0.2% in cash. So basically all fixed income, all junk bonds. So yeah, pretty much all. So it's just trying to look at the stats here. I got a credit reading. Yeah, all corporates. Okay. Yeah, all relatively short term too, between three and, and five years. A lot of double B, single B, below B. Uh, basically, only three to four percent are investment grade. The rest are junk, and that's what this is. It's fallen angels, companies that have fallen out of the investment grade ranking, and they're in that mainly in this high double B range. So the high junk, which is good, right? You're not a ton of super low rated bonds uh, because there there is it is exponential. Meaning those double B bonds, they have certainly a higher chance of going bankrupt typically than your, your triple B, your investment grade and higher, but it's not a whole lot higher, right? In risk, it's, it's pretty minor. But then you start getting down into B and that chance of bankruptcy can double, triple, right? And then you get it into, uh, you get into the C range, and now that gets exponential. Uh, so the fact that this doesn't have a ton of exposure below double B makes me think it's pretty decent, uh, to be honest with you. So uh, not a bad way to gain exposure to the high yield market. It does yield, let's see, what's the current yield? 7%-ish? No, sorry, 5%, 12-month yield, 5%. So you know, corporate bonds right now, you're not getting a ton of yield compared to what you're getting on treasuries, uh, but you can find good opportunities. This one in particular, I probably wouldn't be buying it right now. Now we're heading into a break. Steve and I are happy to play your recorded voice bank, qu bank questions, but we love taking your live calls as well. And our number never changes and it never closes on InvestTalk 888-99-CHART. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Now, my focus point today looks in the story behind this question. Could the American banking landscape be on the verge of a seismic shift? And we all remember not long ago, well, I guess that's subjective, but to me, it's not long ago. And 
you had we had the regional banking crisis in what was that end of April timeframe, and that was all because of rising rates and it started to squeeze a lot of the way that banks made money, and mainly those smaller banks who had had a more flighty deposit base and Silicon Valley bank obviously was the poster child of that. Now the country has 4,672 banks and it looks like either by force or by regulators, you know, market forces or regulators that there will be consolidation within the space. And this shouldn't shock anybody because we have the most banks in the world by far. In fact, the U.S. has more commercial banks than all the other G7 countries combined. Think about that. U.K. has 311 banks. Germany has 251. France has 228. Italy, 218. Japan, 112. Canada, 81. We have 4,839 banks. It's a lot. Now, let's back up and, you know, how do we get here? Well, the first is obviously post-financial crisis. There was a lot more regulation on these banks, especially the large ones. And it forced the large banks to diversify their business, to get out of certain risky business, uh, to have larger capital buffers. And the smaller banks were kind of viewed as lesser than, saying they're not systematically important. And so they were viewed as able to kind of skirt by with less oversight. And many investors thought them as safer. They were less complex than the giant banks, so easy to understand. And obviously, they were not, in hindsight, less risky. In many ways, they were more risky. Now, for over a decade post-financial crisis, banks were awash with deposits. There was a ton of excess reserves, what are called excess reserves within the banking system. And a lot of what the Fed did doing QE and we had the TARP program and all that, that was to recapitalize banks to get them into a healthier position and then kind of put handcuffs on them and, and force them to stay that way. But once again, that was the bigger banks. Now, so far this year, the regional banking index is down more than 20%. Larger banks like JP Morgan, up 7.6% this year. And what you're starting to see is these banks, all banks, are being forced to pay higher rates on their deposits because people are taking that money, they're putting in treasuries, things that are uh, yielding a lot more than your savings account. And this is really breaking the business model of many of these especially smaller banks. And then on top of that, you have the oversight uh, that these banks are going to get because of this. That's going to tighten their ability to maneuver and makes them less profitable overall. All of those things, right? More oversight, higher cost of deposits. And so scale is going to become more important. Scale is important in almost any business, but it's equally as important in the banking sector. So the incentives for the smaller banks to sell to the bigger banks has become a lot higher. 
So that you either need to raise capital or you've got to sell yourself. Or you could wait it out and hope that interest rates fall, which obviously they haven't over the past couple of weeks. And or a lot of those and a lot of those assets just roll off the balance sheet. But a lot of them are long duration that could take a decade. Some of them are 10 year bonds. And then in the meantime, you risk that something else goes wrong, like default cycles rising And a lot of those smaller banks, they have a lot of exposure to commercial real estate, we know what's happening in office, and there's a lot of refinancing coming up over the next two to two to five years. And that's going to put strain and a lot of them are already trying to sell as much assets that are longer duration at reasonable prices. And it's very hard for them to raise capital raising equity. That's one option, typically, but not in this case, because people are pretty worried about that sector as a whole. And then there could be and it could not even be them that causes them to be pushed into another precarious situation. Just look at the contagion that happened in the in the spring with Silicon Valley Bank and that spread to bank to bank to bank. All you have to see with another uh, earnings cycle is a few of these banks seeing big flights of deposits again, you know, losing 20, 30% of their deposits. And so these bigger banks, yes, they have to adhere to more regulation, but they are more able to do that because they have giant regulatory teams already. They can cater to consumer technology demands, all of that. And so we are in, we're at the start of this large consolidation period between these smaller banks. And I actually don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. These other large G7 countries have gone a long time with only a uh, you know, few hundred banks. And that's probably more appropriate anyway. Now, in the next Invest Talk, we'll look into this question. Is it, is it good news for investors if rates stay higher for longer? With the Fed believed to be readying another rate hike, bonds offer attractive yields even after inflation. So we're going to look at that tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein, ready to take your question live at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture. I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value. So your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today.
That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. No two portfolios are alike, and every investor has a unique set of circumstances. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, my name is Brayden. I was just calling. Uh, thank you guys for the show. Uh, it's a good, amazing job. I just had a question about a stock. Uh, it's called Wellpower, W-E-L-L-T-O-W-E-R, and the ticker is W-E-L-L. I know it's a REIT. Uh, I was just wondering if it's a uh, LLP or a LLC or if you get a K-1 for it. But this is financial show. Thank you. K-1 is a REIT. So, that's the nice part about REITs is you don't get that K-1, but it is a pass-through entity, which means that the dividends that you're getting, the current dividend yield on WellPoint or Well Tower, excuse me, is 3.1%. So that 3.1% is taxed at your ordinary income tax rate if it's in a taxable account. So understand that uh, these are tend to be better to be held in some sort of for IRA, 401k, Roth IRA, et cetera. But Well Tower, it's a solid, very large $39 billion market cap healthcare REIT has 1900 in place properties across senior housing, medical office and skilled nursing facilities Has 100 properties in Canada and the UK. So uh, a bit bit of global diversity there. And it's certainly one of the best run healthcare REITs out there. But that's also why the yield is so meager, because it is so well run. You know, this is one of those things where a lot of people take to chase yield and usually burns them. And uh, this is lower yield, better run, solid REITs if you're getting into the healthcare sector. I still don't love the, the, the healthcare sector. The, the typical uh, profitability within that sector is pretty meager uh, on the REIT side. But if you're going to buy one, this is probably the one you want to buy. Right. Let's go to James in New York. He wants to talk about OGN, which is what's OGN? I'm pulling it up. Organon. There you go. Organon. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Uh, I've had it on my watch list for um, some time, and I want to know if it is uh, possibly a value trap, or is it something that might turn around from you know, the losses that it's endured. So uh, I don't know if the fundamentals are strong enough or is it a good value to add at any point in time? Well, it, it is, uh, does look like a good value. I, I will say that. It does look cheap because you're looking at $4 in earnings going forward and it's $20 stock. So five times forward-looking earnings. The issue, though, here is the debt level that they have. And this is a spinoff, and we've looked at this uh, in the past, this is a spinoff, I believe, I forget the, the company that it was a spinoff from, from, but it is a spinoff and it, it took a bunch of debt uh, on. And so right now its market cap is about $5 billion, but it has about eight, oh, nearly $9 billion in long-term debt on its balance sheet. And what kind of worries us when we've looked at this is that they haven't really been able to pay that down very much. In the summer of 2021, so two years ago, it had $9.3 billion in debt. 
Now it has 8.7. So it's paid off about 600 million of that, but it's free cash flow is about 430 million. So, you know, I, I worry a bit about how long it's going to take them to really pay off that debt. Now they're paying a lot of it out in dividend, right? 5.5% dividend yield. So that's why a lot of people are attracted to this is, Hey, they're paying a 5.5% dividend. It's only five times forward looking earnings. So it looks super cheap, but their business isn't growing. The last four quarters revenue growth was is averaged about negative three, four percent. And earnings the last four quarters are in decline. They made twelve seventy-one in twenty nineteen and four dollars and twenty-two cents next year. So if this is kind of a melting ice cube. It's a very slow melting ice cube, but it's a slow melting ice cube with a lot of debt. If this didn't have any debt on its balance sheet, I think it's cheap because it's not really a slow melting and you know its cash flow compared to its market cap is reasonable. But that debt overhang is what kind of says, you know what, uh, I, I wouldn't want to own this. So uh, and, and, the, and then the trend, it continues in a downtrend and I wouldn't want get to get in front of it. So I'm passing on, what is it? Organon, there you go. Thanks for the call. Now, my perspective today looks in the history of investment banking in the United States. Now, first off, let's talk about investment banking versus commercial banking, which is what we our, our main focus point was about, the, the banking crisis recently was about. That was about commercial banking. Now, investment banking is usually when a bank uh, pertains to offering financial and strategic advisory services to clients. Things like M&A, capital raising, whether that's uh, issuing bonds or issuing equity, some sort of capital markets underwriting. And the role of an investment banker is to be an intermediary between the clients and the corporations. So it's to ensure that there's the right guidance that is delivered based on the company's expertise, past transactions, the, the, the current market, right? You, you, you want to go public? Okay, here is the, the price I would, I would uh, price it at so that you will sell all of it quickly, easily. Uh, you want to buy another company. Okay, here's the, here's the advice on how much I would pay. And then there's some negotiation between you know, the investment bank, the company, and the target company. Right? So that's the investment banking's, ba- banker's role. Okay, and these are complex matters. There's a lot of regulation, especially when it comes to public market issuance of stock or, or bonds. And there's obviously regulatory issues with M&A, potential monopoly uh, problems or you know comp- competitive uh, steps that need to be taken uh, to make sure that the regulators are, are happy with the transaction. Okay, so that's what an investment maker's job is. Now, with that being said, let's go back in history. And I'll give you a broad outline of investment banking throughout the many decades. Now, Philadelphia financier Jay Cook established the first modern investment bank during the Civil War era. And private banks had been providing investment banking functions since the beginning of the 19th century. And many of these evolved into investment banks post-Civil War. Postbellum. <clears throat> I don't know if you knew this. Uh, doing the research, postbellum is after the Civil War. Antebellum is before the Civil War. I didn't even know that. I, I, I've heard of antebellum. I never heard of postbellum. Anyway, so we'll jump ahead. 
Now, 1896 to 1929, prior to the Great Depression, you had J.P. Morgan and National Citibank were really the investment bank leaders. And they sustained the financial system. J.P. Morgan, the man J.P. Morgan, personally credited, was credited with saving the country from huge panic of 1907. But in 1929, the investment bank's speculation was out of control. And they used Federal Reserve loans to bolster the market. And this resulted in, obviously, as we know, the market crashed in 1929, sparking the Great Depression. Now, during the Great Depression, the nation's banking system suffered dramatically. 40% of banks either failed or were forced to merge. And this brought on the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, which basically separated commercial and investment banking. Now, they've since repealed that. That was in the 90s, right? You had the boom of the dot-com bubble. In 1999, you had 584 IPOs that were done. That was the most ever in a single year. And most of them were in the internet sector. Obviously, the investment banks helped with that. Now, there was... uh, Let's see. In the 80s, however, in the 80s, there was a rise of a, num- a lot of financial products like derivatives, options, high yield and structured products, high yield bonds. High yield bonds weren't really a thing until the 80s. Michael Milken. And this brought even more fees to investment banks who got these, got buyers for these type of products. They right? were able to pitch them to the market. So that's really where I think investment banks, they, they were in the doldrums post-1929. But they reasserted themselves in the 80s and obviously up until 08, when you had just the big five investment banks mainly. Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, and Morgan Stanley. And as you know, only two of those survived, the Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Bear Stearns gobbled up by J.P. Morgan. Uh, Merrill Lynch gobbled up by Bank of America and Lehman Brothers obviously went bankrupt. Now, according to the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission report, the executives of the country's five major investment banks kept such small cushions of capital at their bank that they were extremely vulnerable to losses, right? Took way too much risk. And I still think to this day, you probably want Glass-Steagall reimposed, but it hasn't. Who knows why? It may come to an issue again down the line, uh, but regulators, you know, they're always focused on the last war, and they, I think that's still the last war. Uh, now, many decades from now, they'll probably take their eyes off the ball again because there'll be another war that they're focused on, and they'll say we've gone long enough, and you know, there'll be enough lobbying to reduce the regulations. But as of now, uh, I think they're fairly safe. But they are going to be very cyclical, at least the investment banks, the Morgan Stanley's, Goldman's, based on what's happening within the capital markets environment, right? Are IPOs going off or bonds being issued? That's, are, is M&A happening? Those are the main ways that they make money. Now let's grab another question at 888 chart Good afternoon, Steve and Justin. This is Steve from Colorado. And the stocks I, I am interested in is I have long-term positions in Bristol-Myers Squibb as well as Novo Nordisk, so BMY and NVO. 
I'm interested in consolidating the number of stocks that I own, and, and I'd like to, to reduce the number that I own. I'd like to, your opinion on selling my position in BMY and increasing my position in NVO. I like both stocks, but NVO just seems to be outperforming BMI considerably, but my fear is that NVO may be overpriced at this point. I just like your opinion. Thank you. All right, I like that you're looking to consolidate. That's a, a smart move. Now, Bristol Myers Squibb, let me take a look here. Bristol Myers, it has certainly been underperforming. Revenues down the last three quarters. Earnings are, are roughly flat, but that's why it's trading at eight times forward looking earnings. 3.6% dividend yield. Take a look here. I have to look at their patent cliffs. They don't have a ton of uh, debt, so that doesn't worry me. But why is their business so slow? That would be my main question. Yeah, it looks like they have patent loss pressure. Um, yeah, it's buying Celgene, or it bought Celgene to improve its pipeline. Uh, yeah, I'd have to dig into this. That's that's really what the issue here is, worries about the, the pipeline uh, of Bristol-Myers. And when it comes to Novo Nordisk, that's doing much, much better. $353 billion market cap. Revenues are up 24% last quarter. Earnings up 47%. But you're right, trading at 40 plus forward-looking earnings. And I do think it's overvalued. So here's my thing. I don't like either of these names. I mean, I like if Novo Nordisk was trading at the same multiples that, uh, that Bristol-Myers was, then yeah, I would probably like it. But it's not. It's trading at... Uh, drastically over uh, price levels. Price sales ratio 13 times. I mean, that's just egregious. <clears throat> and yeah, they don't have any debt. That's positive. But if you look at their multiples, they're just way, way, way over uh, overpriced. So here's my advice. I'd be, I'd be selling both. <laughs> I think I'd be selling both of them. I don't like the patent issues of Bristol Myers, and I don't like the valuation of Novo Nordisk. I'd be looking for others within the space that have reasonable growth. They don't have the patent issues of Bristol Myers and aren't trading at egregious prices like Novo Nordisk. So uh, probably an answer you weren't expecting, but that's my answer. I would sell both of them. Thanks for the call. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we've entered a bull market. But just like we have been for the past 15 years or so post-financial crisis, investors are still looking over their shoulders. And even professionals say that they don't feel the rally is sustainable. But history shows that investors don't tend to love bull markets when they're in them. They only love them at the very end when all the money's in. Right, that proverbial wall of worry. So let's talk about what the wall of worry is right now and how much each one has credence. Okay, First is earnings season. Earnings season kicks off this week, actually, and companies in the SP are expected to report a 7.2% decline in earnings for the second quarter. Now, that's that would be the third consecutive quarter of year-over-year -year earnings decline. But last quarter was low single digits, 
Right now, they're expecting mid to high single digits for this quarter. And overall profit margins are, are, are expected to fall to about 3.4%. That's down slightly from last quarter. But, you know, the high was 13%, and this is still reasonable profit margins, okay? So I think I don't, I don't see this as a big worry because it's a very modest decline, and it's coming off very, very high levels of, of profits. Now, what I think is most worrying is that will companies still be able to maintain those profit margins even though inflation is ebbing? A big reason for them having such strong profit margins, maintaining them at, at above average long-term levels, was it was easy to justify it based on quote-unquote inflation. Are they still able to do that will be a big question that we'll find out after uh, earnings season. But I'm going to get to the rest right after the break. So if you're going to call, you want to do that right now at 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Now, before the break, I touched on the wall of worry that the market kind of continues to climb and really the five things most people focus on when they're trying to argue bearishly about the market, right? So the number one was earnings season, 7.2% expected decline in earnings. Still, my, my answer to this one is TBD. We'll see if this comes in worse than expected, better than expected, what type of trends we see with earnings overall. But if it does come in at least reasonably in line, I don't see it as a big worry because you're coming off very high levels of profitability. It's not like we're going into some major, major decline in earnings. It's more of a reversion to the mean. Now, number two is the yield curve inversion. And this is all about the 210 spread. I like to look more like the three-month, 10-year spread. I think that's a much better gauge. But, you know, this hit the widest negative gap since 1981. And people are pointing, oh, this is a recession signal. This is a recession signal. And you're right, it is a recession signal to a degree, uh, but that could be many months out. And typically the market doesn't react until it's pretty obvious that we're, we're going into one. Okay, so remember, this is the 210 year. So it's saying that the weakness in the economy is going to be even beyond, the major weakness in the economy is going beyond two years. Okay, so this is another one I don't really worry about near term. You keep an eye on it. This, what you actually have to worry about is when this starts to no longer become inverted. That's when you're in the recession. Nothing, things are bad. So as long as it stays inverted like this and doesn't go the other way in a big way, then I'm not too worried about it. Okay. Now, number three, global markets struggling a bit. You had uh, a lot of optimism around China and Europe really recovering in the first half of the year, and that didn't really materialize. Eurozone slid into a recession. China grew, but not that much, not nearly as much as Mark, uh, expected. And so this is a bit of a worry to me because I do think that the global economy needs to stay intact for you to have you know, these multinational companies do well. 
So this is probably the one that is least talked about, probably has the biggest worry on this list. Number four, higher rates causing more trouble. This is the banking crisis that we talked about. Uh, but once again, this is really domiciled in small parts of the pockets of the market and really doesn't worry me too much. I don't think this is a huge contagion event that's going to take down the financial system. You had you had your test in, in the fall, or sorry, in the spring, and obviously the Fed kind of, kind of uh, pushed that back. And then lastly, stock positioning does look a bit stretched, but it's more stretched and overcrowded in those big mega tech cap names after this recent rally. And that's probably the the biggest risk is the, the that positioning reversing. Now I think you can squeeze one more invest talk caller question now from 88899 chart. Hi, Steve and Justin. Thanks for the great show. I would like your opinion on Markel, MKL, Mary, King, Larry. I'm looking to buy and hold it for five to 10 years. Thank you. Bye. All right, this is Markel Group. This is offers specialty insurance products and programs for niche markets. Typically very profitable. And I think this is a very good company to own. And this is one of those great lessons. The current price that it's trading for is $1,600, sorry, $1,370. And people will say, look how expensive it is. It's $1,370 per share. Yeah, well, if you look at it based on its earnings and its cash flow, it's pretty cheap. My free cash flow about $2.4 billion on an $18 billion market cap. Minimal long-term debt on its balance sheet. A lot of cash. I, yeah, I, I, I'm fine with this. I'm fine in buying and holding uh, a company that operates at uh, in, in a niche market, right? Not a whole lot of competition. Solid return in equity, high single digits, low teens, longer term. I think that's fine. It's business is obviously up and down, but over the long term, it tends to perform well. So I'm fine with, I'm fine with Markel. Well, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you'll find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. And we have now achieved 53.8 million downloads since it all began. Thanks to you. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART. Thank you.